what does it mean when Donald Trump can go to an evangelical audience, tell them, look, I know Jesus has all this love your enemies stuff, but you can't do that in politics. That's not realistic. You guys are just going to get steamrolled. So whatever, do that in your personal lives. But love your enemies doesn't work in real life. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Michael Ware, is the president and CEO of the Center for Christianity and Public Life. He has a new book out called The Spirit of Our Politics, Spiritual Formation and the Renovation of Public Life, which he argues for Christians to use their true religious values in politics. Michael served in the Obama White House in the Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships and as National Faith Vote Coordinator for the Obama Reelect. I really enjoyed hearing Michael's story and learned a lot from his book about a world pretty unfamiliar to me. It's a good episode. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Michael at the Center for Christianity and Public Life. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Michael, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I'm Michael Ware. I'm founder, president, and CEO of the Center for Christianity and Public Life, a new nonprofit that has a mission to contend for the credibility of Christian resources in public life for the public good. Prior to that, I served as a consultant for about a decade following my work for President Obama. I I worked in the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships in the Domestic Policy Council in the White House and was asked to run religious affairs for the president's re-election campaign. So anybody who's made it to the White House, who started their own nonprofit, I kind of want to know what the story is from the beginning. Tell me a little bit about where and how you grew up, your education, and also about the role of faith along the way. Yeah, sure. So grew up in Buffalo, New York. Biggest political names out of Buffalo are on the press and communication side, Liz Allen, Bill Burton, both dear friends. So grew up in Buffalo, working class family. My grandfather was a union man, served in World War II, came back, was involved in the community, family of FDR Democrats. I became a Christian when I was about 15, after reading Romans, Paul's letter in the New Testament. And that kind of changed changed everything for me. For a while, I thought, well, I can't, uh, maybe I should go to seminary and become a pastor. 
but thankfully I had a pastor in my life who said, you know, Michael, there are Christians who aren't pastors. And I, I thought that's a really interesting observation. And so I went to DC, I went to George Washington University, uh, was involved with college Democrats there. I was an intern for Mark Warner's PAC. That was, I think, my first internship in college. And remember walking into the office and all the staff was crying because I had walked in just an hour, two hours after Mark Warner announced that he wasn't going to run in 2007, 2008. I was supposed to be leading a group of students to the DNC Winter Convention at the Hilton, Washington, at DuPont Circle. I arrive at the hotel and it seems dead, but I'd never been to a political convention before. So I just thought, I'll walk around the hotel, find the ballroom where this thing is at, and we'll be good to go. Well, after <laughs> after like 10, 15 minutes, I finally asked the receptionist, you know, where is this thing? And she goes, oh, honey, that's not for another couple days. I just had the complete wrong date for oh, the convention. So I am embarrassed and dejected. I am walking through the lobby of Hilton, Washington. And as I'm walking through the lobby, then Senator Obama walks in for meetings the day or two before the convention. He had made a video announcement that he was going to run for president, but this was before Springfield. And so he didn't have Secret Service. He basically walked up to me and I'd followed his career for some time. Harvard Law Review, obviously, is 2004 speech, but he gave a, a speech in 2006 on his vision for the positive contributions faith could make in American public life. I didn't agree with every line in it, but it was deeply moving to me. I, I was pretty set that if I ever had the opportunity to work for him, I'd, I'd chase it down, and, and it, it kind of chased me down. And so I told him I wanted to work for him. Ten months later, I connected with some of his staff uh, there, including Michael Stratmanis. And ten months later, I was in Iowa. And so I was an intern on the 2008 campaign. So I was in the Religious Affairs Department right off from the bat. After that campaign, I went back to Buffalo, went back to working at Wegmans, the grocery store, where I'd worked since the day I turned 15 to make a little money before what I thought possibly could just be going back to school. So I had taken off a semester of college to go to Chicago, do the campaign, but there were no promises. And I just knew we had a huge campaign. A lot of people were looking for jobs. Most of them weren't under 21. And I thought, well, it's possible that that is just a memorable experience in my life. But I got a call offering me a job on the inaugural. So I, I worked on the religious aspects of the inaugural. So there are multiple prayer services, just like other constituency departments. You're making sure that folks who have, who have been involved get invitations to things, etc. It became really clear on the inaugural that wasn't going to be the end. I, I was asked to join Joshua Dubois. Joshua Dubois asked me to, to join him in the Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships, which sits in the Domestic Policy Council of the White House, and I was there for three and a half years. It's an interesting office. We could talk more about it, but a couple principal roles under the Obama administration, the office has changed quite a bit. 
It's both connecting local groups, nonprofits, both religious and non-religious that are serving those in need to federal resources, and then also help the president navigate the range of issues that sort of implicate religion and religious communities and help them navigate relationships with religious leaders. So I did that for three and a half years, then was asked in May of 2012 to lead religious outreach for his reelect. That came to faith in basically an evangelical tradition. It was a non-denominational evangelical church in Buffalo, New York, 15, 20 minutes from Canada, Niagara Falls. And faith has driven my life. It's been at the center, obviously, personally, but also because of the experiences I've had professionally as well. To come to that feeling at 15 seems to indicate to me that that wasn't what was going on in your family to that extent. Yeah, that's right. So what were you leaving behind and what was it, what, and what was it about what you read that, that captured? Oh, that's your... a great question. So family was Italian, Catholic, Buffalo, you know, my experience, which just seemed like you were born Catholic, uh, but it was a Catholicism. Again, this was sort of my perception of it. And, and my understanding has changed as I've gotten older and, and gotten perspective, but it seemed like growing up like a, a, a religion of fish fries and different holidays, but basically a part of the cultural backdrop of our, our lives. I thought no one really believes this stuff. To the point where I wasn't just indifferent, but at points antagonistic. My sister became a Christian a few years before I did. She became friends with a couple where she worked. In Buffalo, everyone works at Wegmans. So she worked at Wegmans. She met this, she met this couple that she was really attracted to. They were a young married couple, and they, they, she there was just something about them, the way they related to one another, that she was attracted to. They started hanging out. They started taking her to church. Then all of a sudden, I had an evangelist next door in my house. And a couple things. One, I have a lifelong passion for R&B music, which interestingly brought me into contact with the gospel tradition. And so through music, I was hearing appeals to put your faith in Jesus as I was waiting for, you know, it would be gospel hour before music videos came on, on BET. And so waiting for the music videos, I'd watch you know, preachers. <laughs> when is Drew Hill going to come on? Uh, and so I had these musical inputs that uh, Lauren Hill has an album, an unplugged album that was deeply meaningful in my life. And so I had that stream, and then I had my sister. And my sister, at one point, ended up taking me to her youth group. And in little brother mode, I was very much, okay, I'm going to go humor her, get some more ammunition, show her how silly all of this is. And it was at that youth group on the way out that I was handed this tract of Romans. And there's a lot to say about Romans. Here's the main thing. For anyone who thinks that religion... Christianity in particular is just like a crutch, that there's no there there. You can't believe that after you read Romans. You can reject what Paul is offering. You can reject the, the argument Paul is making. 
But if your principal objection to Christianity is that it's illogical, doesn't make sense of the world, doesn't have sort of a, a, a vision of the world, Romans is such a lawyerly and thorough a sort of a, accounting that you kind of have to say no or yes after after reading Romans, at least in my experience, a sort of a, sort of a, maybe your postponement sort of doesn't doesn't suffice. That was it for me. I read Romans. I kept on reading it. I have this notepad. I, I said, I'm going to write down passages that, that seem important to me. That notebook is basically a transcription of the whole <laughs> the whole letter. That was how it developed in my life. What was in the 2006 speech that Obama, that you referred to, that Obama, that plucked the same strings? Oh, I'm so glad uh, you asked this. So I'm coming to faith in 2002, 2003. So much of the conversation that is happening now around religion and politics is really just a 2.0 or a 3.0 or a 4.0 of what was happening in the early 2000s. Instead of Christian nationalism, it was theocracy. But remember, George W. Bush, unlike Trump, the narrative with George W. Bush was finally evangelicals got their man. You know, Reagan, actually similar to Trump, Reagan, he supported evangelicals, but he wasn't really one of them. That was sort of the idea. But George W. Bush, Billy Graham, you know, ministered to him and he had a conversion experience and all this. So as I'm coming to faith, I'm not just asking questions about like core theology, you know, what what does it mean to say that Jesus died, rose from the grave, is seated at the right hand of the Father today? I was asking, what does this mean for politics? What does this mean for my my future, not after I die, but like tomorrow. <laughs> uh, it was a very intense period. The, the 2000s were really the start of like the modern decline of religious affiliation. There was a lot of social science research that came out in, in the latter half of the first decade, kind of culminating or peaking with Robert Putnam and David Campbell's book, American Grace, showing that the conflation of religion with the Republican Party was actually harming religion. People were disaffiliating as Christians because Christianity had started to become conflated with a political identity. And so at the same time that Christianity is becoming conflated with a religious identity, I identified as a Democrat, coming to faith in an evangelical quasi-Southern Baptist church. We go through the 2004 election in which we had the Democrats had a nominee who Mary Beth Cahill as campaign manager suggested that religion was one of, if not the primary reasons why he lost that campaign. We don't need to get into it, but it was a pretty inept campaign in terms of its approach to, to religion. And two years later, of course, Barack Obama made his debut, his national debut at the convention that nominated Kerry, in which he talked about the awesome God we worship in the blue states and talked about my brother's keeper and, and had this sort of religiously inflected language. 2006 comes, comes along and he gives this speech at the Calder Renewal Conference in, in Alabama in which he 
says that left-wing secularists are wrong to ask people of faith to leave their faith outside of the door of our politics. He, he calls it a practical absurdity. And in the speech, he speaks very robustly against a sort of conservative use of religion as a weapon. He also speaks about sort of an overconfidence about exactly what Christianity might prescribe for our politics. But he balances that with this idea of, you know, imagine trying to remove religion and religious influences from American history. Where would Lincoln's inaugural, second inaugural be? William Jennings Bryan, Martin Luther King. And so at this very time where, where I was as a, not even an adult yet, at this very time that I was trying to wrestle with, well, what does it mean that I became a Christian? It, it definitely has to change my politics, but in what ways? What does it mean to relate to people who are not Christian? Am I even allowed to bring my faith into my politics? And if I'm not allowed, that seems absurd. How do I navigate that? And here was probably the most promising, even at that time, the most promising figure in democratic politics, if not politics generally, that had a positive vision for what the future of faith in American public life could look like at a time when there was either sort of a calcified, very like politically identitarian uh, approach, or religion was supposed to be on its way out. So you have the famous, I think, Newsweek cover page that declared God is dead. Those seem to be the two options, either a Christianity that is sort of subservient to Republican Party ideology, or Christianity as, at best, something that maybe had some personal relevance and that maybe you could pray in private if you felt so led. It does seem like that has been, having read your recent book, that themes has stayed with you in a prominent way. Tell me, though, about that first meeting with Obama in the hallway, because that there's got to be something special about a face-to-face -face conversation with someone who you'd been thinking about based on that speech we just talked about and who he does have a knack with people, right? What was your impression of him and of that interaction? Yeah, I mean, it was relatively quick. I, I told him, I'm a Christian. Your 2006 speech inspired me. I believe in your vision. I'd love to work for you. And part of what was just so interesting about that was like, he just got it like right away. I think a lot of democratic politicians would be like, oh, I don't see how that fits together because of his experience, his own personal faith and background, because of his experience organizing churches. Like a lot of people talk about Barack Obama as a community organizer, the particular kind of organizer that he was, like the model of it was A, funded by the Catholic Church, and B, it was a church-based organizing model. So he had this, this understanding of the role that faith played in not just personal lives, but in, in communities. And then as a senator, you know, people forget, like he went to Saddleback Church with Rick Warren for World AIDS Day with Sam Brownback. I think that was 2006. He gave the speech in, in 2006 that we just talked about his work around Hurricane Katrina 
was led in large part by Joshua Dubois, who would go on to run his religious outreach. So there was a heavy sort of religious. All that to say, this wasn't just like he was trying to do something here. He was very consciously responding to what had been perceived at the national level as a Republican monopolization of religion. But he knew well enough to know that that wasn't all there was to the story. We met, he told me to connect with Reggie Love, who was his body man at the time. And Michael Stratmanis was there as well. Let me tell you, so when, when I started at the White House, the office was revamped with the signing of an executive order. And so my first official day working at the White House is that there's a signing ceremony in the, in the Oval Office. And so two months earlier, I was a cashier at Wegmans grocery store on Alberta Avenue in the town of Tonawanda, New York. So lateral move. Yeah, yeah, lateral move. <laughs> I mean, I think I was on a path to front end manager if I stayed, <laughs> but he announces one of the things he created with his revamped Office of Faith-Based Neighborhood Partnerships was an advisory council, a president's advisory council. We're walking into the West Wing of the White House. And you have the head of the Episcopal Church and the head of the Southern Baptist. You have the lawyer for the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. And you have Harry Knox, who ran Faith Outreach for Human Rights Campaign. You, you had in that room a demonstration of the kind of pluralistic possibility that he spoke about in 2006 and 2004, and even predating that, it was just incredibly moving to see, oh, you mean religious outreach from the White House can be about more than just rewarding the people that you're going to need for your reelect. This could be about serving those in, in need, not just through financial partnerships, but he put a significant f- emphasis on non-financial partnerships. And so meeting him in the Hilton Washington was obviously, you know, personally uh, an incredible, incredible moment from which everything else came. But I, I often think about that first meeting in the Oval that was in large part a, a demonstration of the possibilities that had seemed so foreclosed, at, at least within the Democratic imagination for so long. Three and a half years in the White House. That's kind of like going to college, I would think, learning about the country and its relationship to religion, like a pretty intensive course. It's got to be. And it's got to be a time of a lot of learning and potentially changing and, and more understanding of our very big country. Tell me a little bit about what you did learn uh, and how. Let me take this a, a, a number of ways. One, I just want to, I worked with some of the most incredible people to this day that I've you know ever met in my in my life. I left government feeling more hopeful for our country and having a greater respect for those who work in government and and frankly for for religious leaders. You'll find duds anywhere, but in part because of the way our work was structured. I got to meet some of the most amazing people who truly were focused on serving those in need and, and helping folks improve their, their station and meeting people 
in the depths of despair, whether from natural disasters or uh, issues with the criminal justice system, etc. We were in the White House at a time when it was becoming clear that there was a great sort of estrangement going on in the country. I guess it's it's old history now, but three and a half years into my time at the White House, so this is like my last six months, I have a new chief of staff come in. And uh, he had a number of the major departments brief all of the White House senior staff on their work. And so, so we, we briefed and it was, it was, it was the entire senior staff of the White House. We open up the briefing with a, uh, a, what we thought was like a throwaway demographic chart that just showed like the number of religious Americans or the religious demographics in the country. And I'll never forget. Yeah. One of the most senior staffers in the White House exclaimed, oh, exclaimed, there are that many of them. And, you know, I don't want to read too too much into that. And I don't read too much into that. I do think it's like a, we've been there three and a half years. We should know the country we're serving. All that to say that there are, are some both religious illiteracy issues. I think that stems also just from an estrangement, an assumption that that's the other part of the country. When, of course, Democrats are, majority of Democrats are religious themselves. The vast majority of those are Christian. You know, where are Democratic candidates going the Sunday before election? They're going, they're going to churches. There were some frustrations around some of the assumptions around, around religion. Then the second thing I'd say is it wasn't a new thing that uh, religion was taking on a partisan character, but that certainly accelerated during the president's time time in office. And he, especially during his first term, made earnest attempts to try to address that. And some significant Advances were made, particularly with with religious elites, with decision makers, with people that he could meet with one on one, that that his staff could meet with one on one. But there was this whole infrastructure, media, technology, political infrastructure that was working at a far more pervasive level in a far more tactile in the heads and in the lives of of the American people and particularly different slices of of religious communities that only gained steam and gained energy and sophistication as his presidency went on. Whoever is in the White House, being in the White House affirms who your friends are and that constantly keeps on getting affirmed. And it becomes reaffirmed who's not with you when they're not with you. I think two-term presidents tend to become more insulated as they proceed in large part because of that. You know when you're in like a, there's a tough decision and it's such a boon to get the uh, to, to get those supportive press releases and it feels like such a punch to the gut when, when there's a criticism. And that just builds up to the point where it becomes hard to build the internal will and motivation for broad outreach beyond sort of those closest in. And I think that that developed too for for 
in some ways understandable reasons. The time between your leaving the White House and the Trump victory, from a religious standpoint, Trump very transactionally made deals and pursued the right-wing Christian element in the country and I don't think could have won without successfully doing that. Tell me about what you were doing and how you were watching that come together. It was very clear to me that the Clinton campaign was making assumptions that demographics, religious demographics had changed enough in this country that they would get more benefit out of using religion as a foil and that it would cost them too much enthusiasm from their base to do the kind of outreach that Obama did and in some ways that Biden did in 2020. I made some comments in, in the press immediately after. I thought it was important to sort of be beyond the record. I don't know how to feel about eight years uh, later relitigating re uh, because everyone on that campaign was trying to do the best that they knew to do. But there was public reporting about, for instance, the Clinton campaign being invited to a St. Patrick's Day, like a like a Catholic parade in South Bend, in South Bend, Indiana, and the response that the organizers who requested that they come to this, the response that they got back was something along the lines of, we don't need to be reaching out to that that community. Like we we don't we don't need them. Well, look at the margin in Wisconsin, look at Pennsylvania and tell me you don't need Rust Belt Catholics. There was a hubris um, that allowed Trump to make religious appeals that he should not have been able to make, that he should have had no credibility to make. But his credibility was not based in his religious sincerity or the sincerity of his commitment to re the religious cause or whatever. His credibility was in his sincerity of hating the people that the people he was appealing to hated as well. He ran such a unconventional campaign in 2016. The most conventional thing he did or the most the most uh, tangible thing he did was release a list of potential Supreme Court nominees. I mean, the man didn't have a platform, but he's releasing names of Supreme Court nominees that shows a particular kind of seriousness um, for, for a man who generally isn't, isn't very, very serious. I'll say the other thing that he did was he was willing to put on the main stage religious figures who had been kept to the background in previous Republican campaigns. This is important. There's a lot of like historical rewriting, a lot of rewriting of history of folks who are like, Donald Trump embraced figures Republicans would never embrace. No, he, he just, Robert Jeffress was opening up campaign events for Mitt Romney, even though he said Mitt Romney belonged to a cult in 2012. Once Mitt Romney wrapped up the nomination, Mitt Romney is going to Robert Jeffress and asking him to, to do the invocation at events. All of the grassroots organizing groups that supported Trump 
they were first buyers in for previous Republican nominees. What, what Trump did was he put on the main stage people that establishment Republicans were embarrassed of, but still wanted their support. And that was a game changer. Trump's embrace of deinstitutionalized figures, televangelists, a Christian musical artist was very intentional. These are people who don't have boards, that don't have followings. They're insulated. Their fundraising is insulated. These, these are basically independent actors that, that Trump empowered, that Trump lifted up. Paula White's a great example. By the way, these kinds of figures don't just reach into conservative white evangelical communities. They reach into Hispanic communities, black communities. This is a major concern for 2024. Democrats, when they talk about Christian nationalism or about right-wing religious extremism, they think they're just using conservative white Republicans as a foil. But if they aren't careful about their language, other constituencies think they're being attacked too. To be honest, what I thought was, like, the Clinton people have very smart people around them. They, they might be right. And then I was concerned about what does it mean if they if the Clinton campaign wins this way? And we have a very robust religious minority in this country that was explicitly ignored by the campaign of the sitting president. That's what I thought was going to take up my work going into 2017, which is like, what does it look like to build a pluralistic country in which uh, everyone has a seat at the table and where religious people, traditionally religious people, feel like there's a chance for them to participate in our civic life. Now, of course, Trump's entire campaign was premised on do not let Hillary Clinton win because you may not have a seat at the table if she does. And Trump made the right bet on that. He thought that he could turn out enough people if there was no pressure release valve and the Clinton campaign decided that, that they wanted to test the notion of whether they could win without hitting that pressure release valve and, and, and they lost. And I, because of deference to like, we have had significant religious change. I thought maybe they'll eat this out, but I was watching, Oh gosh, the stakes seem pretty high to be running this tight a margin. Shouldn't we be trying to, defeat Donald Trump with 55, 60% of the pop popular vote, which now I think we all know is, is just not going to happen, rather than seeing if we could get 50 plus one. Like a 50 plus one against someone like Donald Trump might be a um, smart use of uh, resources, but the, the democratic implications of only beating Donald Trump with that type of a margin seems, seems pretty disastrous. Have you read the book Jesus and John Wayne or Robert Jones, White Too Long, or the one he had before that. The, I've read a number of accounts, because it's not, this is not really my world, of what's been happening in the right-wing evangelical world and its connection to politics. We can trace it back into the 19th century, but it seems like there's been a dramatic change during your time as a consultant and as someone who's been paying attention to this, what do you see happening over there in sort of what the 
Democrats see as the boogeyman part of evangelical Christian. Yeah. So I, I think the biggest mistake that's being made right now is to think the reality of the situation is that you have an increasingly religious segment of the Republican Party, that the religious motivation is the issue. Michelle Margolis at University of Pennsylvania, Ryan Burge, a number of social scientists, Tobias Kremer. What's really clear is that what we have instead is partisan identity that sort of uses religious symbols and institutions in some in some ways and religious collateral to support secular political aims. You said that a number of times, something to that effect in your recent book. And every time you did, I had a debate in my head about the directionality of causation there. Like, is, is the population which is changing in its view in this area, driving the parties to react to it and go where it is? Or is the party, as you've just stated, pulling them there? And I think it's the same thing on guns. Like if you listen to like Ryan Bussey or someone like that about how the NRA moved people or what was the interaction between people and the gun companies? I think they're quite analogous. Are you confident that that the parties are driving the opinions of people? Not necessarily the parties. Let me put it in a bit more of a, 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 a pithy way. The problem with Christian nationalism is not that those who hold to it are taking their faith too seriously or that they just believe in the nation and want the good for the nation too much. The problem is that they aren't Christian enough. The problem is that they don't love the country enough. There's both a reality of the situation that I want to contend to. So for instance, what does it mean when Donald Trump can go to an evangelical audience, tell them, look, I know Jesus has all this love your enemies stuff, but you can't do that in politics. That's not realistic. You guys are just going to get steamrolled. So whatever, do that in your personal lives. But love your enemies doesn't work in real life. He says Christians are under attack. Christianity is under. He plays that card. Yeah. Right? Yes, yeah. he does. And this was this was again central to his 2016 campaign. And there there were ways to counter that that were just not taken up. Like it, that argument wasn't undertaken the way Obama undertook that argument. Exactly right. Ex exactly right. Which is to prove provide a vision for how you could hold religious beliefs and have a future in American civic life. Barack Obama didn't convince everyone about that. Barack Obama didn't win 50% of white evangelicals. He did win 26, 27 in his first campaign when Hillary Clinton won 16% in, in 2016. So it makes a difference. Barack Obama won the Catholic vote. Hillary Clinton lost the Catholic vote according to exit polls. The reality is you pull Trump voters and it's just, it's very clear that theology is not driving their policy positions. Theology, no, but religion, yes. 
so it's so interesting. So during the Trump years, we've seen a rise in those identifying as evangelical among those who don't ascribe to evangelical beliefs. We've even seen a, a rise, like some studies have picked up Muslims, like Trump voting Muslims who identify as evangelical, um, right? So, so it's just a lot is going on. I mean, the, the short way to say it is that evangelical has become for many a, a, political, uh, a political assertion, almost just like a way to express affiliation, but also against the other side. Evangelicals vote against Democrats. Yeah, I'm an evangelical. But here, we could talk all day about the no true Scotsman sort of sort of fallacy. And there are some people who say, well, no matter what, even if they don't believe that Jesus rose from the grave, if they identify as evangelical, evangelicals have to wear that. And fine. I just know Christianity in this country is much more than evangelicals. And to our point earlier, Politically speaking, Democrats need to be very careful that they're not sweeping up some of their own constituents in some of these critiques. But but let's put aside the, the, the academic sort of arguments. Politically speaking, in a nation that is about 70% identifies as Christian, and unless you've sat in a political seminar, nationalism just sounds like make America great again, which sounds like who doesn't want America to be great. Maybe these aren't the best labels to be placing on a movement that even Robbie Jones says somewhere between 5% and 10% of Americans actually subscribe to it in full. So we're applying terms that have favorable ratings of 70% to movements that only comprise 10% of Americans, and we think we're undermining that that side of things. Do you apply that to the term white also? Because it is still a majority white country, and there are people who would put a negative valence on whiteness also, or in that context, if they're saying white Christian nationalists, right? Does, does that strike you in the same vein? We're having a debate as a party about the political wisdom of that. The historical grounds of white supremacy are a lot more solid. The academic research and just the the national experience with white supremacy, I think, demands a different kind of attention and naming than Christian nationalism. I do think that there is a general issue with Democrats and Democrats' relationship with academic conversations where there's not the proper level of responsibility taken for communicating academic concepts in a way that good faith people that just don't have an academic background can hear and process in a way that's fair. Some concept may have come up that's new, that has been processed in one community. It can't be bludgeoned into another community that hasn't absorbed it yet. I, th- I think that's right. I, I, I think, you know, to say whiteness is a scourge and for people to be offended at that and then say by whiteness, we mean uh, in the classroom, if that's if that's what you want to do, you want to you want to spend time developing the academic scaffolding to properly understand something like that. 
fine. In a political setting, you can't really judge people <laughs> for doing some translation themselves if they're unfamiliar with a concept and, and saying, yeah, this doesn't seem like they're appealing for my vote. <laughs> so you seem to indicate that the Biden campaign in 2020 moved a little away from what you're sort of critiquing about the 2016 campaign. How so? There are basically three aspects to faith outreach. And you were part of that, right? No, I was involved with a super PAC called Not Our Faith, but I was not in, in the Biden campaign. And Not Our Faith was anti-Trump super PAC. There are basically three aspects to religious outreach. There's rhetoric, there's engagement, so media interviews, meetings with religious leaders, sort of constituency work. And then there's there's policy. The Biden campaign gets a, gets an A for religious messaging. You look at his major campaign ad buys, and there was almost always a through line of religion. One of their closing ads around COVID showed what was clearly a chaplain praying with uh, a patient and their family. There was just a cognizance that Biden had from his own background, that religion is a part of American life. It's part of how people see the world. It should be reflected. If I'm going to tell the story of America, I should do so you know, faithfully. I shouldn't, I shouldn't summarily take out faith. So just that messaging, the, the fact that Biden was able and willing to offer a path for religious voters who are not happy with Trump, but didn't want to feel like voting Democratic required sort of a breach of conscience, Biden offered a pathway, a pathway that wasn't satisfying enough for everybody, but a pathway that was that was enough, especially in Georgia, where he increased. And again, I, I hate to talk just about white evangelicals because they account for a minority of American Christians and American religious uh, but just as an example, in Georgia, he basically got two and a half times more white evangelicals than, than Hillary Clinton did in 2016, which more than made up for the margin of his victory in Georgia. There's rhetoric, there's policy. So in the platform, there was a measure around providing support for houses of worship that were vandalized or that needed face like homeland security threats. And so the Biden administration covered policy. And then staffing, they had a religious outreach director who was who was empowered, uh, uh, Josh Dixon, who did a great job. And then they had some senior staff like John McCarthy and, of course, Mike Donilon, who had robust experience as well. And so they didn't do everything. They did work to build a permission structure for religious Americans who weren't already Democrats to feel like it was plausible to vote for their campaign over over Donald Trump. Why did you start the Center for Christianity in Public Life and what's going on there? Yeah, so it's a it's a nonprofit, nonpartisan center um, that is, you know, I've been involved in a number of short-term responsive advocacy efforts. This is m my sort of long-term institutional play. The, the mission is to contend for the credibility of Christian resources in public life for the public good. We advance that mission through two streams of work. Uh, the first is 
uh, civic formation. And there we're helping to grow, resource, convene uh, those who are convinced that spiritual formation, the kind of people we are, has much to do with the kind of politics uh, that we have. And so we have a public life fellowship program. We have a young professionals network. We'll be piloting a high school program this summer. That stream of work runs parallel to what we call our public imagination stream, where we explain Christianity to the public and advance Christian resources for the good of the public. Our conviction, our theory of change is that when you run work along these two streams, they validate, support, importantly, hold accountable the work in the other stream. The fate of our democracy is inextricably tied to the character of Christianity in this country. It's just impossible to imagine the health of our civic life running on a separate track than the character of of Christianity and, and religion in this country. And so CCPL works to advance a vision of Christian contribution that is oriented toward the public good, to raise up a generation of leaders who embody that, and to set a table for conversations about the future of faith in American public life in, as we have discussed, a country where demographically, culturally, things are rapidly changing and a new conversation has to be had about what does the place of religion, what does the place of Christianity look like in American life in the 21st century? Given those changes which are being observed every six months, it seems like things are shifting. If you think about 2024, how much do you think the grounds have shifted in terms of where Christians are, how they're behaving, how they're going to line up. You spent your entire recent book, I think, carefully negotiating away from the partisan divide in a certain way, right? And you're interested in people's behavior here and its connectedness to kind of being good and being gentle and being the positive aspects that people might see in Christianity. But there is a to use your word, a very robust political thing going on on the other side, which is weaponizing Christianity. I mean, you had a whole list of adjectives of things to avoid, like the othering, et cetera. Aversion, misplaced moralization, yeah. Yes. I mean, that seems to be in the <laughs> center of what yeah. you're opposing, right? Yeah. My question is, how is the balance on that? And my perception is we're going the wrong way. Uh, do you think so? And what is your advice about what to do about it? I do. I think we're going in the wrong in the wrong direction. Uh, but a, a big reason for that is that we're caught in a cycle of a politics of antagonisms. And if we don't provide an imagination for a healthier form of politics that's viable, then there is no off ramp to this. Maybe some outcomes will be better than others in the short term, but we'll constantly be caught within a logic that leads us inevitably to a worse and worse uh, situation. So, for instance, in, in the book, in the spirit of our politics, I talk about 
political sectarianism and the logic of political sectarianism, which runs on aversion, othering, and a misplaced moralization. But right leading into that section, I, I talk about the profound decline in trust in government. A Pew just had out new numbers a few months ago showing a rock bottom numbers of Americans who believe that public officials are there to serve the public good as opposed to uh, self-interest. This is the story that Trump tells, which is not, I'm a great guy, which is not, you know, I'm motivated by a heart of service. It's, look, everyone in politics is out for their own. Everyone is self-aggrandizing. Vote for me because at least my interest aligns with your interests. And I think he believes it because he projects how he is onto other people. Yes, 100%. You read sort of the focus groups. I think Democrats make a mistake when we speak too sweepingly about a vote for Trump being an affirmation of everything the man stands for. What it is, I think, more generally, what it should more generally be understood as is a reflection of Americans' profound cynicism about the entire political enterprise. (laughs) And if that doesn't change, if we aren't able to stoke an imagination for a politics of public service again, then this is going to continue spiraling downward, even if we evade the worst electoral outcomes in the short term. The logic is still there. That's still what we're operating on. You're book becomes explicitly directed at parents and pastors, and and I'm sure you mean broader than that. What is the reception you're getting? What do you think is the state of the argument? Is it getting any purchase in some parts of the Christian community that people can use this to help make change, help arrest this direction that we're kind of inexorably going in? Yes, I, I think for a period you had, and this this still exists to some extent, but there was this dominant idea in many churches and among many witches, yes, our politics and even the Christian sort of influence in politics, at least as is sort of popularly understood is, has not been positive. But the lesson learned from that was we, we have to keep politics outside of the church. Like it was a withdrawal. It was a protection from. I think what is what has changed over the last seven, eight years uh, is there's a greater understanding that we live in a culture and in a place in which politics produces culture that is saturating. And politics is is going to act on our communities. Our political culture is going to act on communities. If we are not thoughtful about formation, if we aren't thoughtful about the kind of people we're becoming inclusive of our interaction with politics, it's not that politics won't act on us. It'll be the politics acts on us unawares without our sort of input into how we receive that. There's a growing recognition of the, just like we had uh, 30, 40 years ago, something called the faith and work movement, which is still growing and, and expanding today, which the faith and work movement was about this understanding that 
Christians didn't see what connection there was between their faith and their jobs, their professional life. Well, if, if Christians don't see what God has to do with their professional life, that's a pretty big chunk of their life to, to not be connected to their faith. A similar issue is happening with public life, and I'm seeing increased attention. So the reception to the book has been warm. I think what what many see in the book is there's been a lot of diagnosis, not a whole lot of what do we do, what are we building, what's a better way, and the book the book seeks to provide that. So what would you like to see out of politicians if they don't want to, to fail to contest any portion of the electorate that is potentially available? And if part of that is the various types of Christians, what do you think ought to be said? What do you think ought to be done? What kinds of things would impress you like you were impressed in 2006 by Obama? I think public servants need to think very carefully about the costs of winning through antagonism, of, of winning through running against certain communities. The, the costs of that are, are profound. I think we need public rejections of a politics of aversion and othering and an elevation of policy disagreement to that of, that of good and evil, a misplaced moralization. I think really highly of Pete Buttigieg when he ran in 2016, his campaign issued a rules of the road document that were commitments that his campaign was making about how they were going to conduct themselves, how they were going to treat voters. And I know there's like a cynical or skeptical approach of like... He's one of those people, I think, like Cory Booker, like Obama, who has actually thought hard about some of these issues. Yes, Yes. He's thought hard about these issues. They are trying in a political culture that doubts whether public service is even possible. I think Secretary Buttigieg has done a wonderful job of trying to connect the work he does to the needs and pressures and pains that American people are feeling and, and, and trying to show how government can alleviate those pains. I think a lot of Democrats are jealous of Donald Trump. There's a jealousy of why can't we use anger the way he does? Why can't we use fear the way that he does? You saw Democratic politicians cussing on the campaign trail. And the whole idea was like, this is we're going to reconnect with the people. This is like the language of the people. And, and it, like it didn't pan out. One of the reasons for that, and, and here I'll, I'll actually show like, I run a nonprofit. I wasn't particularly partisan when I was working in politics, when I was working on political campaigns. But here, here's what I will say: um, when when your when your party is premised on the idea that government is the problem, then a politics of chaos and antagonism only affirms your position that government doesn't work. The government isn't out to support the people. When Democrats try to appropriate those kinds of means. It doesn't work because it undermines the very argument we're seeking to advance, which is that government can be a force for good, that actually we can have a big, robust, diverse, multiracial democracy that can function because we could approach politics in a way that isn't entirely self-interested. But when we try to emulate 
the sort of worst caricatures, which aren't always true, by the way, but the worst caricatures of what we identify as working for Republicans, we actually undermine our own our own credibility. That is a real concern. That is one of the one of the concerns I have that that actually in this robust opposition to Donald Trump, Democrats are actually learning from some of the worst aspects of of Donald Trump and the kind of politics he has instead of a, a complete rejection of some of the ways in which he so undermined public public trust. I think I, I agree with that. And I think it's one of the great hazards of having him in our lives. One of the many. Is there a question I should have asked you that I failed to? I don't think so. I will say I, I hope folks will will check out this this book, The Spirit of Our Politics. One aspect of what I'm trying to do is uh, when you're a civic leader, when you're working in politics, the stream of information you get about religious communities and religious influence on politics, especially if your work doesn't directly touch on it, is religion is generally brought to you as a problem. And this is Republican and Democrat, like um Religion is generally brought to you as something that's a problem. Th- this book, I hope, will provoke an imagination, even for those who aren't Christian themselves, even for those who their political work hasn't touched on religion explicitly, will provide an imagination for the ways in which Christian resources can support the kind of politics I think many of us would like to see regardless of our faith. And by sort of provoking that imagination can open up pathways to partnership, to a politics of mutuality that so much else in our politics is seeking to close right now. And so even as just a um, a measure of outreach or, or a recognition of the fact that folks serve serve communities in which many are religious would love for for folks to pick up this book and would love to receive feedback and thoughts from your listeners about how they processed it given their own their own backgrounds and the professional challenges that they're facing i found it very interesting myself very much because it involved a language and a way of thinking which is not part of my normal way of engaging with the world. So I learned from it. And I think that other people would too. And I appreciate you taking the time. Anything else you want to say? No, no, I'm good. Thank you for having me. It was great to meet you. Thank you for your work. Thank you. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.